This is Dr. Tim Clinton for Family Talk. I want to thank you for joining us for our broadcast today. You may or may not know that Family Talk is a listener-supported program, and we remain on the air by your generosity. If you can help us at all financially, we would greatly appreciate it. Thank you also for your continued prayers and support of the ministry. Dr. Dobson's been fighting for the family for over 40 years now, and he's not about to stop, believe me. Here's Roger Marsh with more information on how you can support the ministry of Family Talk. And friend, thanks to generous listeners like you, Family Talk can reach more and more listeners with practical help and encouragement. To support Family Talk with your best gift, go online to drjamesdobson.org or call Today on Family Talk. Are you burned out as a parent? Are the needs of your children and upkeep of their schedules wearing you down? Is the approaching school year stressing you out already and it hasn't even begun yet? If you can identify with any of those observations and those feelings, listen closely to today's program. Welcome to Family Talk, a ministry produced by the James Dobson Family Institute. I'm Roger Marsh, and whether you are listening on the radio or online, we are so glad you've tuned in today. Today we're going to revisit a classic interview Dr. Dobson did with psychologist and best-selling author John Rosemond. The two will identify ways that culture has warped parenting and neglected teaching kids obedience and respect. They'll also unpack the importance of proper discipline and boundaries in the home as well. If you're having trouble with a strong-willed child, then you will learn something from this interview, I guarantee it. So let's get to part one of Dr. James Dobson's conversation with John Roseman here on Family Talk. We draw a lot of our information from the same source, you know, from the Scripture and uh, from the Judeo-Christian system of values, and that's why we have been friends for many, many years, going back to the mid-1970s, and uh, he's been our guest here before. I'm speaking of psychologist and author John Rosemond, and he's written a number of best-selling books on parenting, including the one that we're going to talk about today, Parenting by the Book, Biblical Wisdom for Raising Your Child. He's obviously a deeply committed uh, Christian. He has his own uh, column that is carried in, uh, John, I think 200 newspapers around the country. You know, it's hard to tell from week to week, about 250, something Mm. like that. You've been doing that for a long time. I think all the way back to my days at Children's Hospital, I remember getting uh, reports of the, those uh, uh, commentaries, <laughs> those and you do a good job. Psychologically incorrect commentary. Yeah, <laughs> I've been writing a weekly column since March of 1976. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I read someplace that you were in graduate school in the 60s. Is that correct? Late 60s, early right. 70s. Yeah. So was I. Yeah. I finished my doctorate on April 3rd, 1967. So I'm probably ahead of you. I know I'm older than you are. About five years, yeah. Uh, But I saw the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it took my breath away. I saw that uh, a whole new, quote new, a whole new concept of uh, children and authority and discipline, uh, all of that came into question. And what I had observed from largely from my mother, but from the culture and from the scripture, was now disrespected and disregarded. And it was that circumstance, as I went through graduate school, that caused me about the same time that I got out mm-hmm. uh, to sit down and write Dare to Discipline uh, because I was trying to say, wait a minute, there's something wrong right. here. And you were and a it, voice crying in the wilderness. I yeah. was, and yeah. I took some flack for it, but that book is still out there. So uh, it must have had uh, some substance, and that substance was a scripture. And well, that book, Jim, had a tremendous impact on me, too, because I'd come out of graduate school in the early 1970s completely indoctrinated in the new psychological point of view, which I call postmodern psychological parenting. And 
to encounter your book in the early 1970s and to read your book and just understand the common sense of it, uh, it was startling to me. It, um, mm-hmm. it was paradigm shifting for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've told people for many, many years, and, you know, this is not a, a program mm-hmm. for mutual congratulations, <laughs> but, I mean, you've been a great role model in my career and my life, and uh-huh. I can't uh, express my appreciation enough. Well, when you're on the front lines, you enjoy having some fellow travelers out there, Absolutely. some other people who are willing to stand against the tide. What concerns me, John, is that uh, uh, the culture it has forgotten those things. I mean, it's even more confused about them now than it was then. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe we made a little progress in... Uh, uh, encouraging parents to implement those principles. But in the culture at large, uh, it's gone. I mean, I'm in the airport and I'm in markets and uh, all around uh, on travels and so on, and I just see parents with no clue as to how to gain control and build respect and build uh, a sense of worth in this generation of kids. Well, this is because primarily, I think, Jim, we shifted from a family structure that was parent-centered in the 1950s and before to a family structure that has been child-centered since the early 1970s. And children used to grow up in families where it was understood. The child's job was to pay attention to the parents. And now the implicit understanding and assumption is that it's good parenting to pay as much attention to and do as much for your child as you possibly can do. And one of the things that I tell people as I travel the country is that by age three, a child has intuited one of two conclusions concerning his relationship with his parents. Conclusion number one, the functional conclusion is, it is my job, speaking as the child, to pay attention to them my parents. Conclusion number two, it's their job, quite obviously, to pay attention to and do things for me. You and I are members of the last generation of American children who, by age three, understood it was our job to pay attention to them. These are kids. That's right. These Mm. are kids who are growing up in families who lack that understanding. Mm. And when you lack that fundamental understanding, Uh, you are going to be difficult to discipline. Uh, The title of your book, I've uh, indicated this is what we're going to be talking about, is Parenting by the Book, Biblical Wisdom for Raising Your Child. Uh, You may have been referring here to parenting by this book or your book, but I don't think so. I think you were saying uh, parenting by the book, the Word of God, which has a lot to say about children. Well, that's why I told my publisher to capitalize the letter T in the word the. They they came back to me and they said, why do you want... I said, it's the book I'm talking about. This is the Bible. This is a source of eternal truth. God has set forth a plan in the Bible concerning how we should raise children. We're not following that plan in America. That's the root cause of our problems. That's what I'm talking about. Isn't it amazing how it works? Isn't it amazing how effective that word is when you apply it to children? Absolutely. I mean, it just uh, is phenomenal to see those principles in effect and uh, and see the consequences for children. Yeah. You know, Jim, this is not self-promotion, but I do 200 talks a year all over America, and people will come up to me and tell me, you know, John, I came and I expected to talk on how I should deal with tantrums and how I should deal with uh, resistance on the part of my child and rebellion and talking back and so on and so forth. And instead, what people hear from me is a description of a point of view that you should carry into the raising of a child. And I'm absolutely convinced if you carry the right point of view into the raising of a child, and the only right point of view is described in Scripture, you will do the right thing most of the time. All right. What is that point of view and what's the source for it? The point of view that's set forth in Scripture is that discipline is the act of discipling the child. It is the act of turning the little tyrant, the toddler, 
I sometimes call him a little criminal, into a pro-social human being who will look up to you, follow your lead, and subscribe to your values. And I can't emphasize enough to parents in America, you don't do this with behavior modification. Mm. You do it through role modeling and instruction and leadership. And this is what parenting is all about. And these people come up to me and they say, John, you know, I, I got it. You know, I left here with a different point of view and it's made all the difference in my family. And it's not my point of view. It's, uh, I'm a messenger. You know that, Jim. Where you know do you that. find it in Scripture? You find it everywhere in Scripture. You find it even in places where it doesn't refer specifically to children. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 is a good example. There's a time for everything and a season to every purpose or activity, mm-hmm. depending on translation, under heaven. Now, how many people would read that and think that it applies to kids? But it does. It says... There's a time for everything. There's a season to every purpose, which means there are seasons to the raising of children. And one of the things I do in Parenting by the Book is talk about those seasons and what your purpose as a parent should be in each one of those seasons. Uh, It is uh, a pleasure to raise children who have been trained according to these principles. And uh, and yet you see kids uh, disrespecting the authority of their parents. You see parents who feel like they're going to damage the children somehow mm-hmm. by leading them, by saying, uh, let's get something straight here. I'm the parent. You're the child. You will do what I tell you to do because mm-hmm. this is in your best interest and this is what God tells me to do. Mm-hmm. So expect it. If you challenge me and you disobey me, uh, I will give you reason to regret it. I mean, we can sit and talk, but there comes a time when you're going to do what I want you to do because I love you, little one, and I will not do anything to hurt you. I'm trying to get you ready uh, to be an effective adult. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of versions of that, but I bet sure. you've given that speech before. Well, you know, I, the way the variation that I used to deliver it to my children in was this. You make your decisions, kids— and then I will make mine. Mm. And the understanding was, you make a good decision and I will stay out of your life. You make a bad decision and I'm gonna be in your life in a way you don't like it. You know, and I used to tell my kids, look, if you want to keep your big daddy off your back, all you gotta do is do the right thing. John, it's that you're simple. You're threatening these little kids. You are <laughs> oppressive to these children. I, I, you are overbearing. You're taking away their freedom, their individuality. You're warping these kids. Have you ever been charged? Oh, with absolutely. Them? I, I won't mention names, but uh, a parenting quote expert end quote uh, once in a forum accused me of being hung up on punishment. And you know, Jim, as well as I do, that all of the research says the happiest kids are the most obedient and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I say to parents, if you want to grow a happy child, a child who is comfortable in his or her own skin, make sure your child is obedient. And the Bible tells you how to do that. You are listening to an insightful conversation Dr. James Dobson had with psychologist and author John Roseman here on Family Talk, a radio ministry of the James Dobson Family Institute. We thank you for your consistent support of Dr. Dobson over the years, and especially right now. Your generosity fuels us to continue fighting for marriages and families worldwide. Visit drjamesdobson.org to learn how to make a donation to support our ministry today. That's drjamesdobson.org. And now let's return to Dr. Dobson's conversation with John Roseman. We've titled it God's Wisdom for Raising Children here on Family Talk. Uh, John, have you ever read the statement about child rearing that was written by the mother of John and Charles Wesley, the uh, noted uh, evangelist from the 1700s? She had some pretty dramatic things to say about raising children. Have you ever read what she wrote? I have never, but I have have been referred to a biography, and I'm, I'm about to expose myself to their lives and looking forward to it. Well, I have a, uh, a short piece uh, that 
came from a longer statement that she made, but it's written in the language of the 18th century, and uh, it's a little difficult to uh, understand today, but it's right on target. And uh, Susanna Wesley obviously uh, learned some things from raising 17 kids, and I have uh, drawn some of my own perspectives from uh, her longer statement, which I won't take the time to read. But let me just uh, uh, share a paragraph or two from what she had to say. She wrote, In order to form the minds of children, the first thing to be done is to conquer the will and to bring them into an obedient temper. To inform the understanding is a work of time, and must with children proceed by slow degrees as they are able to bear it. But the subjecting of the will is a thing which must be done at once, and the sooner the better. For by neglecting timely correction, they will contract a stubbornness and an obstinacy which is hardly ever conquered, and never without using such severity as would be painful to me as to the children. In the esteem of the world, those who withhold timely correction would pass for kind and indulgent parents, whom I call cruel parents, who permit their children to get habits which they know must afterward be broken. Uh, she goes on from there, and you can hear the wisdom of this godly mother in what she's writing. And see, uh, I have in my book, Strong Will Child, and numerous other places, talked about shaping the will without breaking the spirit. And she's talking here about shaping the will. Uh, John, did you agree with what she said? You know, you mentioned that she raised 17 children. These women who raised uh, mm -hmm. 10, 12, 17 kids prior to the psychological parenting revolution that we're talking about, yeah. they brought to the raising of children a calm yet forceful authority. One of the things that I tell my audiences is I'm a member of the last generation of American children who were blessed to be afraid of their mothers. <laughs> and, you know, people will yeah. look at me, these young people, and I say, look, this was a biblical fear. It was a biblical fear. In the Bible, it says fear of the Lord is of benefit to us. It's not of benefit to him. It's not for his benefit that we fear him. And the same is true in the parent-child relationship. A child who is biblically afraid of his parents, who is intimidated by their calm, purposeful authority, is a child who is truly blessed. You know, I write often about my father, and uh, I had a great relationship with him. And uh, the truth of the matter is, my mother in the early days was the far greater influence. And uh, I suppose I don't talk as much about her because it's not as socially acceptable for a man to talk about his mommy as it is to talk about his his daddy, I suppose. But my mother really understood discipline. And I was afraid of her, but I also knew she would not harm a hair on my head. She loved me enough to die for me, mm -hmm. and she made me know it. She cared about what I thought. She cared about what I felt. And in so many ways, she um, built uh, a confidence within me uh, that allowed me to compete in life as a man. But I would not take her on. And the few times that I did it, I lived to regret it. Uh, I sassed her. I really, I don't know, I was about seven, eight years of age. And I just said something really disrespectful. I don't remember what it was, but I do remember what she did about it. I, I remember taking a step back and thinking, I, I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and she reached out to see what she could get a hold of to whack me with, and her hand landed on a girdle. When I spoke in Gastonia, North Carolina, I probably told that story because I can still hear that thing coming. And, you know, those are the days when a girdle weighed about 16 pounds, oh, you sure. know, and it had yeah. straps all over it. And uh, it came flying through the air, and she caught me across the chest. And I, and then all those straps came around after. And <laughs> I got a whole spanking with one blow. But you know what? I didn't do that again. 
That's I great, didn't Jim. do that again. What a great story. But I lived in safety because that never happened unless I had asked for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It wasn't an arbitrary act on your mother's part. <laughs> it was She odd. had not lost control, no, not by any means. No, she wasn't going to take it. Yeah. Now, you do believe in corporal punishment. I have no problem with it at all, per se. You know, I think that you can overdo it. I think that you can do it in a way that is irresponsible. But I have absolutely no problem with it whatsoever at, at a per se level. You know, people think that old-fashioned parenting of the type that you and I experienced as kids was just replete with spankings, that we just got a spanking every other day or yeah. something. There was a poll done about 10 years ago, Jim, and I can't put the finger on the specifics of it. But it was a poll of people our age, thereabouts. One of the questions asked was, how many times do you estimate that you were spanked in your entire childhood? Surprisingly to most people, especially people who came after us, the average answer was five. And mm. that's how many times I think I was spanked as a child, was five times. The spanking was not the centerpiece of discipline. Right. Leadership was the that's centerpiece right. of discipline. And, you know, one of the interesting things that I do, Jim, in my audiences is I ask how many people were raised by a mother who never yelled. And an audience of 500 people, maybe 300 people will raise their hands. And then I say, is there a woman in this audience tonight with children living with her in the home who can say that she has never yelled at her children? And do you know there are times when in 500 a 500-person audience, I'll get no hands up. Is that right? And my point, I will say, this is what postmodern psychological parenting has caused. It has caused parenting to be a tremendously stressful affair mm. because we are trying to parent according to a set of rules that don't work mm. and that have nothing in common whatsoever with the directions that God has clearly given us in his word. John, that is so good, and I believe it's absolutely true. Uh, there is great concern today about child abuse, and I'm one of the people who are concerned about it. It's mm -hmm. happening all over the country, and, uh, and sometimes I get accused of uh, encouraging a parental behavior that would lead to child abuse. The truth is it's the exact opposite. You tie the hands of parents. You leave them only negotiation as a way to get the child to do what the parent wants them to do. And and you tell them that uh, any overt uh, uh, physical punishment or any kind of punishment, whether it's sitting on a chair or going to the room or whatever it is, uh, when you put them in a straitjacket where what they do is going to fail, it leads to overreaction. It Absolutely. leads to yelling. Yes. It leads to child abuse. Yes, it does. It actually it leads, is related to right. child abuse. It leads abuse. to these huge explosions that take place. And this is one of the consequences of this new parenting, is the buildup, the constant buildup of stress, and then the explosion on the part of the parent. And, um, you know... The studies, Jim, and uh, you know this as well as I do, but I'll just bring it out for the benefit of our listeners. The studies have clearly indicated that children who score highest on measures of emotional and social well-being are children whose parents occasionally spank. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. And there have been a thousand studies that uh, have been faulty, in my view, showing that spanking leads to all kinds of emotional damage. Uh, what they don't explain is that nearly every one of those studies is uh, based on parents who are abusing mm -hmm. their kids mm -hmm. and not separating that from those who use it judiciously as a way of reinforcing authority mm -hmm. and then saturating the relationship with love. That's a totally different thing. Completely different thing. And those studies that you refer to, I... I wrote a book called To Spank or Not to Spank, and I, I researched a lot of those studies. And uh, Jim, again, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. These are researchers with an agenda. And you mm -hmm. cannot do honest research if you right. begin your research with an agenda, with the attempt to prove something. Mm -hmm. The only legitimate research is done by people who aren't attempting to prove anything. They're mm -hmm. attempting to investigate. 
John, isn't it interesting that uh, I was on uh, the West Coast, you were on the East Coast. We had gone through secular training institutions, and uh, we met as adults, and we have drawn the same conclusions based on the Scripture and based on our own observations. And they're valid, and they work, and you have put them, uh, many of them, in this book, Parenting by the Book, Parenting by the Word of God. And uh, it's uh, been a pleasure working with you through these years. Let's do another program tomorrow, shall we? Let's do. All right. We'll do it. Thanks for being our guest today. Jim, I've thoroughly enjoyed it as usual. Thank you for having me on. We hope you've enjoyed listening to psychologist and author John Roseman here on Family Talk. You can visit our broadcast page at drjamesdobson.org to find a link to John's ministry. You'll also learn more about his various books and the articles that he's written for his website as well. You can find all that and much, much more by visiting drjamesdobson.org and then clicking onto the broadcast page. We encourage you to listen to Family Talk and Dr. Dobson using Amazon's Alexa. If you have this smart device, you simply use a command to access our daily broadcasts. So go to drjamesdobson.org forward slash Alexa to learn how to activate your Amazon Alexa. Remember to come back again tomorrow to hear the conclusion of Dr. Dobson's conversation with John Roseman right here on Family Talk, a ministry of the James Dobson Family Institute. I'm Roger Marsh. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning into our program today. You may know that Family Talk is a listener-supported program, and we remain on the air by your generosity, literally. If you can help us financially, we would certainly appreciate it. God's blessings to you all. That's right, Dr. Dobson. And friend, thanks to generous listeners like you, Family Talk can reach more and more listeners with practical help and encouragement. To support Family Talk with your best gift, go online to drjamesdobson.org or call 877-732-6825. Today on Family Talk. Parents must avoid the mainstream cultural methods to raising their children. They instead must look to God's Word for insight and direction on parenting. Welcome everyone to Family Talk, a ministry of the James Dobson Family Institute. I'm Roger Marsh with your host, psychologist and best-selling author, Dr. James Dobson. On today's program, you're going to hear part two of a conversation Dr. Dobson had with psychologist and author John Roseman. They'll continue addressing the negative influences culture has on our kids, especially through media and technology. The two will also discuss why it's healthy to instill a sense of fear and respect in your kids as well. John Roseman is a psychologist, an accomplished author, and a syndicated columnist, appearing in over 220 newspapers nationwide. He's been troubled by the state and future of American families since the 1970s. John has written and spoken extensively about how parents can better raise and educate their kids. And with that said, let's hear the rest of his conversation with Dr. James Dobson today here on Family Talk. It is my observation, sadly, that uh, many parents today have a very foggy or imprecise idea of uh, what they want to try to accomplish with their own children and how to raise them. And the philosophy that guides those efforts, you know, the culture just seems to have forgotten what past generations took for granted because they understood it from their parents and their grandparents. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about uh, today with our guest, John Rosemond, uh, who uh, provides through his writings a very uh, clear understanding of what we as moms and dads are trying to do or should be trying to do on behalf of our kids. Mm. And John Rosemond is uh, back with us today, for, uh, the continuation of the conversation we started last time. Uh, he is a family psychologist and has been for many years and now devotes his time to speaking and writing. Uh, he teaches at parenting workshops throughout the country, and he has a column 
that appears in over 200 newspapers, and uh, his latest book is called Parenting by the Book, Biblical Wisdom for Raising Your Child, uh, because he takes that philosophy I was talking about right out of Scripture. And John, it is uh, really good to have you back with us. It was fun talking to you last time. And uh, as a way of kind of summarizing, I want to ask you uh, to give us that general overview of your approach to parenting. What is it that you're trying to say through the many best-selling books that you've written, including the one that we're going to talk about today, Parenting by the Book? Well, what I'm trying to get across is that uh, we are hung up in America today on methods when it comes to disciplined children. And um, we should know by now that these methods aren't working. And the reason they're not working is because parents are not bringing the right point of view to the raising of children. And I say time and time again, with the wrong point of view, no method is going to work for long. With the right point of view, any method is going to work. It's the point of view that you bring to the raising of a child that is the important ingredient in the equation. And we embraced a wrong point of view concerning the rearing of children in the 1960s and 1970s, a point of view that uh, was not biblically based, and we have been paying the price for it ever since. With all the harmful influences that are out there today, uh, TV, music, magazines, uh, cell phones, texting, and so many other things, uh, how can parents regain ground in that effort to influence their children? I mean, there's a tug-of-war for the hearts and minds of children today. How can parents equalize their opportunities against this culture that's uh, impinging on the home? Parents have always accepted the responsibility of uh, filtering what culture reaches their children. And adults have always accepted this responsibility. I'll give you an example. When you and I were kids, and we went to the library, uh, the local public library, and we would pick up a book and bring it up to the librarian, there was a chance on occasion that she might say, I'm not going to let you check out this book. Yeah. It's not appropriate for an eight-year-old to read. Uh, adults used to accept that responsibility. And I say to parents today, you need to accept this responsibility. Our culture is assaulting, secular culture is assaulting yeah. our children through the media. And you need to control what media reaches your children as well as you can, understanding you can't do a perfect job of that. But it's one reason why I tell parents, I don't care if your child is 16 years old. He should not have his or her own password to the computer. He should not have his or her own private computer terminal in his room. Or a TV. Or a TV. It's like letting a child take a walk down a red light district. That's what it is, to let a child have a TV or a computer in his or her room. It's a very dangerous thing. And parents need to be, I think, confronted with this responsibility that they have to... Uh, parents today think, well, everybody else's kids have these things. I don't have a right to mm. deny my children these things. And I say, look, your children's rights are at issue here. Your child's right to grow up to be a morally fit individual is at issue here. This is your responsibility. You are implementing that responsibility not to do something to the child, but to do something for the for time. the child exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you mentioned uh, how the culture was when we were younger. Uh, I wish that uh, that aspect of of our society were still applicable. Where I knew as a child that every adult uh, accepted a certain responsibility to protect me from that which was evil or that which was harmful. And I knew if I did something in the neighborhood that was disrespectful or harmful, my parents would know about it. And the school would tell my parents. So I not only had to um, uh, circumvent the authority of my parents, but every other adult out there if I wanted to do what was wrong. Yeah. That's not there now. No, it's not. There is not this desire to help parents do their job better. In fact, you, the 
parents are likely to get jumped on if they do, in fact, discipline and train and guide their kids. Well, they're likely to be looked upon suspiciously by the authorities, at least, Jim. You know, you and I are the last members of the last generation of American children to grow up during a time when everybody was on the same page concerning how children should be raised. Your parents were on the same page. Your parents and your teachers were on the same page. Your parents and your neighbors were on the same page. And this was such a blessing to us. We may not have liked it at times, you know, because we couldn't get away with stuff that we wanted sometimes to get away with. But it was, in retrospect, what a blessing. And this is lacking in today's parenting culture. What suggestions would you make to parents to build character in their children? Suggestion number one, we've already discussed, keep the computers and video games and televisions out of their room. How do you teach them to be honest? Teach them to be honest. Uh, Honesty is a matter of respect for other people. You are an honest person because you respect other people. And the way to teach children respect from a very early age is to put them in positions of responsibility in the family where they learn to exercise obligation to other people, beginning with their obligations to other members of their family, simply because they are a member of the family. Yeah, and modeling. Modeling. They're watching you every minute. They see what you do, compromises in what you believe and what you have tried to teach uh, are counterproductive. I mean, they argue against each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have an obligation to um, to represent what we believe before our children. And that's what it says in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. At every possible opportunity, talk to your children about these commandments. And what that means is to explain to your children why you're doing what you're doing and to rest your explanation on the eternal truth of God's Word. Mm -hmm. And the emphasis there is on teaching your children. And this is, again, I come back to this over and over again. Discipline is about the discipling of the child, and you do this through proper instruction and role modeling in your values. Uh, John, you say in this book uh, that uh, children should actually be somewhat intimidated by their parents. Absolutely. A lot of people are going to argue with you about that. I'm not one of them. Explain it. Well, uh, every effective leader intimidates the people that he leads. And he intimidates them not by yelling and screaming and threatening and getting red in the face. He intimidates them with his natural, confident poise and purpose. And that's what I'm saying to parents. Look, if you intimidate your children through yelling and screaming, that's not intimidation. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about bringing a calm, confident poise to your parenting where your children know you are completely comfortable with your authority as a parent, and that is going to be intimidating to your child. There is so much confusion about this subject uh, in the culture. It's not surprising that mothers and fathers often disagree with regard to discipline. Uh, What is your advice to those that just are having a hard time coming to terms? If you put your children at the center of attention in the family, the likelihood of disagreement between husband and wife concerning the children is uh, exaggerated considerably. If you put your marriage first and your relationship with your children second, the likelihood of disagreement concerning parenting issues is minimized as much as it can possibly be. You know, two people can't agree perfectly on any set of things, but you can agree on 99% of child-rearing matters if you function as husband and wife first and as mother and father second. One of the things that uh, I've observed with what we've been talking about here is that um, it is very common to have uh, one parent growing up understanding intuitively the things we're talking about, about parental authority and parental leadership and uh, taking charge of a child and holding the individual accountable, all those kind of things that you described last time as being a way of thinking about children, which really comes out of Scripture. Uh, But the other spouse did not grow up with it, never saw it, 
The parents never exercised it. They have no clue uh, of how to do that or even why they ought to. And their approach is, uh, is naturally permissive, which feels pretty loving. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to love you. Let me hug you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I don't want you to be uh, unhappy or not to uh, get what you want. And I want to give you as much freedom as I possibly can. And then when the child turns around and looks you in the eye and says, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, and I don't even think I like you anyway, uh, they have no idea how to deal with that. And so then you've got the mom and dad on a collision course because one understands it and the other doesn't. There has to be a moment when they can get together outside the child's hearing and say, uh, can we find a way to deal with this because we're going to really damage this child. Compelling words from Dr. James Dobson on why a husband and wife must work together as parents. I'm Roger Marsh, and you're listening to Family Talk, a ministry at the James Dobson Family Institute. We are so grateful for your prayers and your consistent financial support of this ministry. Your prayers motivate, sustain, and propel us to fight for marriages and families all across the land. And you can learn how to stand with us in this battle financially by visiting drjamesdobson.org or by calling 877-732-6825. And please know how much we appreciate that support. Okay, as we rejoin today's interview, Dr. Dobson continues talking about the breakdown in the American family. Let's hear what he has to say. I have observed um, through the years that the combination of parenting approaches that I just described produces the most aggressive, hostile Uh, disobedient teenagers Uh because they've grown up disrespecting both role models. Mm -hmm. They lean in opposite directions. They contradict each other. And uh, you must not do that. Because when you, as husband and wife, don't agree on how to raise the children because you're spending too much time in the roles of mother and father and you've let the roles of husband and wife uh, be slide into the background uh, almost to a non-existent state. Uh, when you do that, your children can manipulate you. And when your children can manipulate you, they don't respect you. They take you for granted, and they try and get from you what they can. And uh, so I say to parents, you know, all over America, look, you know, the ideal situation would be if young people about to get married sat down before they were married and said, let's come to terms over how we're going to raise our children before we even tie the knot. Hmm. That doesn't happen, though, does it, very not, often? Not very often. Do you have people come to you before they're married and say, uh, John, give us some advice. Uh, how are we going to deal with our children? Well, I don't have people, because I'm not in private practice, Jim, any longer. I left private practice in 1992. But... I have people who uh, come to my public presentations quite often who uh, are married or about to get married, don't have children, and uh, I see that as a a beacon of hope in our culture's future that maybe these young people are realizing that uh, even the way they were raised wasn't really uh, a functional way of being raised. And they want to do a better job, and they're interested as much as they can be in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in doing it differently and doing it better. Well, I have uh, found that uh, uh, individuals don't feel the need for that advice until they run into difficulty. Most people you know? don't. And yeah. uh, it's after their child is driving them crazy yeah. uh, or is obviously in serious trouble that they come and say, Help me. Yeah. What's going on here? But uh, when couples are about to become parents, they think they know. It, it looks a whole lot easier than it is, isn't doesn't yeah. it? It, yeah. it looks like all you got to do is love them. Yeah. Well, it turns out that there's a little more. There's a little more. And you know, the uh, what we're talking about is grandma's old uh, saying that uh, a ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. You know, the time mm-hmm. to deal with all of this is before you have a child. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, strike, I, I also put it this way, strike while the iron is cold. <laughs> now, you have seven grandkids. Seven ranging in age from 
as we speak, 13 months to 13 years. Are the principles different for grandparents? Yes, they are, in a sense. I mean, the principles are not different. But, you know, uh, my wife and I give ourselves, Jim, quite admittedly, a little more latitude. I'll give you one story. Yeah, but, you know, our grandchildren obey us. They understand yeah. we've never had to raise our voice with our grandchildren. We just tell them the way it is. Um, our... Uh, uh, oldest grandchild, who's now 13 and one of the finest young men I've got to say I've ever seen his age in my life. Um, Jack, he was two years old, and he, my wife Willie and I, we used to let him come over to our house and climb up on the coffee table and jump to the sofa. And every time he came to our house, he would climb up on the coffee table and jump to the sofa and then get off and get up on the coffee table and jump to the sofa. And Willie and I would stand there and clap and, you know, hoot and <laughs> holler and it was just great fun. So one day, his mother brings him over, Nancy brings him over, and he runs straight for the coffee table, jumps up on the coffee table, and jumps over to the sofa. And Nancy says, Jack, you don't do that. And I turned to her and I said, oh, no, we let him do it. And she said, well, we don't let him do it in our house. And I said, and you shouldn't. <laughs> Who would have thought you were a permissive grandfather? <laughs> uh, you know, the, yeah. the joys of grandparenthood. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I sometimes um, recommend to parents is a, a consequence that I call kicking them out of the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And kicking them out of the Garden of Eden is the child comes home from school one day and there's nothing in his room except a bed, a desk, a lamp, and a chest of drawers and essential clothing. And he's told that he's going to live this way until his attitude improves and is improved for at least a month. And then he'll begin to get things back on a trial basis. How cruel. How cruel. <laughs> How inhumane. The feedback that I have gotten off of this is just tremendous. Uh, the mother of a four-year-old child called me a couple of years ago and said uh, her daughter refused to use the toilet. Four years old, still using diapers. And I described this procedure to her. I said, get rid of the diapers when she comes home today from preschool nothing in her room, and you just tell her, this is how you're going to live until you use the toilet. And you've used it successfully for at least a month. And the girl came home, and the mother called me a half an hour later and said, John, she's just in her room screaming bloody murder. And I said, well, it's been 30 minutes. She has every right to scream bloody murder. Her life has been turned upside down. And uh, two hours later, she called me back again, and she said, she calmed down finally. She came to the door of her room and she said, Mom, I want to use the toilet. <laughs> and the girl has never had an, what I call an on-purpose. Some people would call them accidents. The girl never had an on-purpose from that moment on. You know, yeah. and, and I tell people you've got to invoke what I call the Godfather principle when you're invoking consequences, and that is you make them an offer they can't refuse. Uh, Don Vito Corleone. And it might involve something unpleasant. It might involve something unpleasant. Yeah. And, and that's not going to warp them. I've never, I've ne you know, I've been doing this now, Jim. Uh, you've been doing it longer than me. I didn't mean to, to <laughs> yeah, it's you know, true. reveal that. It's but true. I've been doing this now almost as long as you, and you and I have been doing it since the 1970s and before. And I have never had a parent, and neither have you, I'll dare say, Never had a parent come to me and say that anything that I recommended caused their child harm. The feedback that I've gotten and that you've gotten has been uh, universally positive. And the reason for that is, you know, it's not due to you and me. It's due to the fact that we rest our principles and our mm -hmm. advice on eternal truth. Which is the uh, reference made in the title to your book, Parenting by the Book, Biblical Wisdom for raising your child. We got time uh, just for this last comment, John. There is a serious problem with child abuse in this country. And there are parents who are doing terrible things to children. But good biblical uh, approaches to parenting are not uh, mean. They are not harsh. They are not oppressive. They do not uh, result in any kind of harm, psychological or physical, uh, to a child. 
uh, when you implement them, there is peace and harmony in the camp. Uh, when you're in charge as a parent and you're willing to defend that authority, the child is comfortable with that and moves within it. And if you're doing a lot of screaming and yelling and a whole lot of spanking and whacking and all that, you're on the wrong track, and you might harm that child. Well, and you're absolutely right, Jim. And, uh, you know, to any parent who needs comfort, uh, you know, Jesus said, uh, those of you who feel heavy laden and burdened, come to me. And I would say to any parent who needs comfort, to any parent who feels that parenting is a burden, uh, go to the Lord hmm. and, and begin by going to his word. Uh, boy, that is a great note to uh, end on because I don't care how wise you are as a parent. I don't care how many books you've read and how much you think you know about children. You still need prayer. Absolutely. It is a complex assignment in this culture particularly. John, you're a good man. Thanks for coming back to be with us. I always enjoy talking to you. Uh, there's so much that we could discuss, and I appreciate you writing this book. I want you to come see us again when you're back in this neighborhood. I'll be sure and do that, Jim. You, you're, a, you're a great gentleman and a great citizen and a great American. Thank you so much. Well, we pray that you have been impacted through Dr. James Dobson's conversation with John Rosemond here on Family Talk. Learn more about John Rosemond's ministry by visiting today's broadcast page at drjamesdobson.org. There you'll find a link to his website where you can explore his many resources on parenting. So head on over to drjamesdobson.org, then tap onto the Broadcast tab at the top of the page. Now, if you like what you heard on today's broadcast, be sure to call our offices here in Colorado Springs at 877 877- 732-6825. When you connect with us, you can leave a message on our listener feedback line. Through that inbox, you can also make broadcast suggestions or leave your general thoughts about our ministry. When you call, another option you'll have is to speak with one of our representatives as well. They'll be happy to talk with you, pray with you, or to help you locate any of our resources. We want to hear from you, so please call us at 877-732-6825. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Be sure to join us again next time for more engaging and uplifting broadcasts here on Family Talk, a ministry of the James Dobson Family Institute. I'm Roger Marsh. Have a great day. Hi, Dr. Tim Clinton for Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. Hey, right now, grab your cell phone, go to your app store, and click on the Dr. James Dobson Family Talk app. Download it right now, and you can start listening anywhere at any time. 24-7, 365. When was the last time you heard a child referred to as obedient? It's probably been a while. That's too bad because the best research tells us that obedient children are happy children. And from my experience as a family psychologist, the parents of obedient children are happy parents. Since all parents want their children to be happy, the question becomes, how does one get a child to obey? Is there some trick to it? Well, there certainly are a lot of parents who think so. They believe that proper discipline is a matter of using the right methods, techniques, and strategies, what I call consequence delivery systems. Parents have been using these behavior modification-based methods since they became popular in the 1960s, seemingly to no avail. Would anyone argue that today's kids are more obedient than kids were several generations ago? I don't think so. The reason these methods and techniques don't work is that proper discipline is not a matter of proper methods. It's a matter of a proper attitude on the part of the parent. Let me illustrate the point. Let's say that for a week, I observe the classroom of a grade school teacher who has the reputation of being the best disciplinarian in her district. She consistently has fewer behavior problems than any of her colleagues. What is she doing? She's making her expectations perfectly clear, which means, first, she communicates in simple declarative sentences. 
She doesn't use 50 words when she could use 10. The more words you use to communicate your expectations, the less confident you sound. Second, she prefaces her instructions to her students with authoritative phrases like, I want you to, and it's time for you to. She says, it's time for you to take out your math books and turn to page 25, as opposed to, let's take out our math books and turn to page 25, okay? Third, this teacher does not explain the motives behind her instructions to her students. Why? Because she knows that explanations invite arguments. Whenever parents tell me they're dealing with an argumentative child, I know that these well-intentioned people are explaining themselves. They tell their child why they want him to pick up his toys, for example, and he argues because you can always pick apart an explanation. If you don't explain yourself when you give an instruction to a child, then the child, being a child, is almost surely going to ask for one. He's going to ask why or why not? At which point, get ready for a big surprise. Your answer should be, because I said so. These very useful four words, and no, they will not cause psychological damage to your kids, quite the contrary, are a simple but powerful affirmation of the legitimacy of your authority. Say it calmly. Don't scream it. Nothing good is ever accomplished by a person who screams. Last but certainly not least, when giving instructions to a child, do not, let me repeat, do not bend down to the child's level. Getting a child to do what he or she is told is a matter of looking and acting and talking like you have complete confidence in your authority. Bending down to a child's level does not look authoritative. It looks, in fact, like you're one movement away from being down on your knees in front of a king. I know. You've read somewhere that you should get down to a child's level when you talk to him. Well, all I can tell you is that there's a lot of really bad parenting advice out there, and that's but one example. Speak to children from an upright position. That causes them to look up to you, and that is a good thing for them and for you both. I'm John Rosemond, author and family psychologist for Prager University. I want to tell you about an essential vitamin you've probably never heard of. If you're a parent or plan to be one, it might be more important to your child's growth than all other vitamins combined, and only you, a parent, can provide it. I call it vitamin N, the word no. More and more children I find are suffering from vitamin N deficiency, and they, their parents, and our entire culture are paying the price. Let me illustrate my point with a story that's quite typical, a father I'll call him Bill, gave his son, age five, pretty much everything the little boy asked for. Like most parents, Bill wanted more than anything for his son to be happy, but he wasn't. Instead, he was petulant, moody, and often sullen. He was also having problems getting along with other children. In addition, he was very demanding and rarely, if ever, expressed any appreciation, let alone gratitude, for all the things Bill and his wife were giving him. Was his son depressed, Bill wanted to know? Did he need therapy? His son, I told him, was suffering the predictable ill effects of being overindulged. What he needed was a healthy and steady dose of vitamin N. Overindulgence, a deficiency of vitamin N, leads to its own form of addiction. When the point of diminishing returns is passed, and it's passed fairly early on, the receiving of things begins to generate nothing but want for more things. 
One terrible effect of this is that our children are becoming accustomed to a material standard that's out of kilter with what they can ever hope to achieve as adults. Consider also that many, if not most, children attain this level of affluence not by working, sacrificing, or doing their best, but by whining, demanding, and manipulating. So in the process of inflating their material expectations, we also teach children that something can be had for next to nothing. Not only is that a falsehood, it's also one of the most dangerous, destructive attitudes a person can acquire. This may go a long way toward explaining why the mental health of children in the 1950s, when kids got a lot less, was significantly better than the mental health of today's kids. Since the 50s, and especially in the last few decades, as indulgence has become the parenting norm, the rates of child and teen depression have skyrocketed. Children who grow up believing in the something-for-nothing fairy tale are likely to become emotionally stunted, self-centered adults. Then, when they themselves become parents, they're likely to overdose their children with material things. The piles of toys, plushies, and gadgets one finds scattered around most households. In that way, overindulgence, a deficiency of vitamin N, becomes an inherited disease. An addiction passed from one generation to the next. This also explains why children who get too much of what they want rarely take proper care of anything they have. Why should they? After all, experience tells them that more is always on the way. Children deserve better. They deserve to have parents attend to their needs for protection, affection, and direction. Beyond that, they deserve to hear their parents say no far more often than yes when it comes to their whimsical desires. They deserve to learn the value of constructive creative effort as opposed to the value of effort expended whining, lying on the floor, kicking and screaming, or playing one parent against the other. They deserve to learn that work is the only truly fulfilling way of getting anything of value in life, and that the harder they work, the more ultimately fulfilling the outcome. In the process of trying to protect children from frustration, parents have turned reality upside down. A child raised in this topsy-turvy fashion may not have the skills needed to stand on his or her own two feet when the time comes to do so. Here's a simple rule. Turn your children's world right side up by giving them all of what they truly need, but no more than 25% of what they simply want. I call this the principle of benign deprivation. When all is said and done, the most character-building two-letter word in the English language is no, vitamin N. Dispense it frequently. You'll be happier in the long run, and so will your child. I'm John Rosemond, author and family psychologist for Prager University. A lot of the things that are wrong with the world, we can't fix by ourselves. As much as we'd like to see peace brought to troubled areas, corrupt governments reformed, cancers cured, there's a limited amount that any of us as individuals can do about such things. However, there is one thing that nearly all of us can do that will immediately and exponentially increase goodness and happiness on Earth. Parents and all other adults should reserve their highest praise of children for when their children do kind acts. That is not the case at present. As a rule, children receive their highest compliments for one of four things. Their intellectual and academic achievements. My son, Sean, is brilliant. His teacher says he's the best student she's had in years. Their athletic abilities, their artistic attainments, and in the case of girls, their looks. Children who receive their parents and other adults' compliments in these areas are delighted. Everyone loves compliments. 
But what about the child who doesn't excel at academics, who isn't a gifted athlete or dancer, the girl who is not particularly pretty? About what will their parents praise them? Most flattering remarks such a child is likely to hear their parents tell others will be something like, but he or she is a really good kid, from which it can generally be inferred that being a good kid is not a big deal. That from the parent's perspective, the child is probably not very good at anything worth talking about. Some parents to whom I've made this proposal have told me it's unnecessary. They're certain that they have successfully communicated to their children that being a good person is what really matters most to them. By and large, these parents are deluding themselves. And there is a way for parents to find out if this is so. For many years, Dennis Prager has suggested that parents ask their children, what do you think that I, your mother, or I, your father, most want you to be? Successful, smart, good, or happy? Many parents who have conducted this experiment have been quite surprised to learn that their children did not think that being good was what mattered most to their parents. Try it yourself. Ask your child of any age that question, what do you think I most want you to be? I want to make it clear I am not suggesting that parents stop complimenting their children for their accomplishments in other areas. All children want to know that their parents have respect for their accomplishments, and girls, even more than boys, also need to feel that they are physically attractive. But, and this is an important but, what I'm suggesting is this. The traits that we most often emphasize and praise are all important only if being a good person is placed at the top of the list. But then you might say, don't these traits have a value in and of themselves, independent of goodness? The answer is no, they don't. Germany did not start World War II and carry out the Holocaust because it lacked intelligence or cultured people, but because it lacked enough good people. Now, what do I mean when I speak about young people being good? Let me cite a few examples. Speaking out against and confronting a school bully. Befriending a new kid at school who isn't popular. Hi. Hi. Finding a wallet or cell phone and making every effort to locate the owner instead of keeping it. Offering one seat on a bus to an older person. Thank you. Treating one's siblings decently. Not cheating on tests. And much more. Note, however, I didn't list among my examples going on a 10K walk for a good cause like cancer research. That is, of course, a very worthwhile thing for a young person to do. But it's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about individual one-to-one -one acts of goodness, of integrity. Why will parents reserving their highest praise for their child's goodness and integrity have so powerful an impact? Because children will then ultimately identify feeling good about themselves with being a good person. They will most like themselves when they act nobly. Or to put it another way, their self-esteem will come more from their goodness than from anything else. What a world that would be. And the best news about this proposal is that you can start doing it immediately. And I don't mean tomorrow. I mean now. I'm Joseph Telushkin for Prager University. Join Prager University, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and sign up for free at PragerU.com.